as we're doing that, I'd like to welcome you to uh, week number two of our series, Faces in the Crowd. Um, I'd also invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20. And if you didn't bring your Bible, you'll probably be able to find a blue Bible somewhere close to you uh, in one of the seat backs in front of you. And you'll find Luke chapter 20 on page 744. Uh, This is a series that we're kind of leading up to Easter and celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And in doing so, we're looking at the people Jesus talked to, the stories Jesus told, with the idea of us catching a glimpse of ourselves in the crowds that Jesus was addressing and in the stories that Jesus was telling. And so I hope that that we can do that this morning as as we listen to uh, another one of of the parables, the stories, in this case, an answer to a question that Jesus gave. And uh, to start off this, I want to ask you a question. How many of you Whenever you have a family gathering, maybe, you know, Easter is coming up or any family gathering or a, or a social event that you attend, there are certain things on the subjects to avoid list that you just don't talk about. Anybody have some of those? Okay. No, really. Do you have those? Okay. I, there are things that in, in my family you just don't talk about, Right. And what I did was I kind of came up with this idea that I think it's a universal truth for most of us that there are these three things that we just try not to talk about in public settings or with family. And they are money, politics, and religion, right? Do you kind of agree with me on that, that most of the time? Okay, good. Uh, I appreciate your willingness to tell me that you think I'm right. I appreciate that. Um, we, we try to avoid talking about money, politics, and religion. And what's interesting to me is it's true for us, and it was really also true in the time of Jesus as well. You just didn't talk about those things. Uh, the people who didn't like Jesus didn't like what he was teaching about, didn't like the people with which he was interacting. And so they decided that they wanted to bring an accusation against him. They were trying to you know, get Jesus to, to, to trip him up. And so they decided the best thing they could do was to ask him a question. And so they devised this plan to combine the three things you're not supposed to talk about, money, politics, and religion, and ask them all in one loaded question of Jesus. The, the idea was that they wanted to give him just enough rope to hang himself. And so that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 20 uh, here in just a moment. Uh, This account, this story is recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to be looking at it from the Gospel of Luke and and drawing some facts from from Matthew and Mark as well, just to help us have a, a fuller understanding of it. But in verse 20 of Luke chapter 20, it says this, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies. Now, before we go any farther, I have to ask you the question, who do you think are sending spies to check up on Jesus? Pharisees and the Sadducees. That are two great guesses. In this case, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we didn't talk about them yet. Last week, we talked about the Pharisees, and they were teachers of the law. They were Pharisee, okay, some of you remember, and then you have the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, they were Sadducees, see, audience participation, you'll get there. They they were both religious organizations, right, religious groups, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here you have the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were not religious, they were a a purely a political group. Uh, They they 
separated themselves from the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the respect that they sincerely supported Rome. Uh, they, they really did. They uh, appreciated Rome. They wanted everything to be Roman. They were friendly to Herod. They were friendly to, to Herod Antipas. And, and because of that, they were enemies to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they didn't get along at all, especially with the Pharisees. Uh, it was really difficult for the Herodians and the Pharisees to unite on anything. They fought. They debated. They, they had these discussions. They were basically enemies. But the one thing that could unite them was opposing Jesus. If you look back in Luke chapter 13, you find out that Herod didn't like Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you, so you better get out of here. And we know from uh, John chapter 11 that the Pharisees then, a little later, they started their own plot to try to figure out how to do away with Jesus. And so these two groups who couldn't stand each other joined together to reach this common goal. It was the, the attitude of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so they joined forces together because Jesus threatened their power. Jesus threatened their influence. He threatened their little corner of the world, and so they wanted him gone. And so back to the text, it says they sent spies. Those are the two groups, the, the, Sadducees, or the Pharisees and the Herodians. They sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Sappy, buttery, right? Oh, you're so great, right? They're buttering him up to try to kind of lead him into this, and then they fire up this loaded question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, in our society, this idea of paying taxes is very similar to what they're talking about here, but there was an, an extra added uh, part of it back in the time of Jesus. And the best way for us to understand taxes in this context is to think of it as not only paying a monetary amount, but it's also paying tribute. And that's the word I want you to think about, tribute. Um, and while it's the same thing as taxes, the real difference is what it really meant. It meant that you were giving honor and respect as well. Not just paying something to them, but it was honor and respect is what you were giving back to them whenever you paid taxes. And, and essentially what they're asking is this. Is it right, Jesus, for us to give honor and respect to Caesar, or is it not? Now, this was a hot topic conversation of the day, uh, politically, uh, here in, in Jesus' time. Uh, we have to understand a little bit about how loaded of a question this truly was. You see, the, the tax code of the day, when, at this time, was this. If you're a member of the ruling country, then you did not pay taxes. So, if you were Roman, you did not pay taxes. But if you were anyone else, if you were, you know, the, in the nation and you'd been conquered by Rome, or if you were a foreigner coming in, then you had to pay taxes. 30 years prior to this, uh, approximately, uh, the question had been asked, uh, 30 years before this question was asked of Jesus, the Caesar was Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus began to expand his kingdom uh, exponentially. He, he wanted to really have power and control, and, and so he did what was very common at the time. He sent rulers and people out into the Roman land that had been occupied, and their job was to collect taxes, to pay tribute back to the Caesar. 
we talk about Zacchaeus and how Zacchaeus was rich because he was you know, coming off the top of all this stuff. That was happening all over the place. So the really getting taken taken advantage of the, the Israeli people, the, the Israelites. They, they were just they were being taxed and taxed and taxed uh, all the time. Uh, a few years before Jesus's birth, it, it was said of uh, Publius Verus, who was the ruler in Syria. It said. As a poor man, he went into a rich province. And as a rich man, he left a poor province. In other words, he taxed and he taxed and he taxed and he taxed some more. And when he left, he was set and the people had been devastated. And so that gives you an idea of how how this works. Literally, the Jewish people were being taxed to death and Rome was becoming wealthy. And as we, we read about before, that didn't set very well with the people. And so they did the only thing they really knew to do. They sent a delegation to try to gain an audience with Caesar again to complain that Herod was collecting more taxes than he was supposed to. Well, Caesar wasn't sure that that was true or not. And so he decided that the best way to do that was to count all the people in the land to find out how much taxes should really be collected. And the scripture tells us in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Luke 2.1. Now, where do we normally hear that? Christmas. That's the context we miss sometimes by just reading Luke chapter 20. This is all connected. See, the, the people, when Jesus was born, this is happening, and they're making this connection, and they're kind of saying, all these years we've, we've been paying taxes. And Jesus, what do you have to say about this? The census was all about learning how many people were there to learn about how many taxes that should be paid. Another thing <clears throat> that I think is, past, uh, is fascinating about this idea of, of paying taxes or giving tribute to Caesar is that they paid the tax with coins. And the issuance of coins was a really big deal in this time, you know, in, in this time frame. Uh, with coins, that was the way you, you kind of promoted your politics. It was the way you got propaganda out there. And, and Caesar could put his face on the coins, and he could put any inscription on it that he desired. And, and into the kingdom it would go, and, and people would be very familiar with this coin. Well, in the time of the story here, in Luke chapter 20, Tiberius is the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And we have a picture of his coin, and uh, you see that there behind me. He has a laurel wreath on his head. And I'm not sure if you can really tell that or not, but, but there's a laurel wreath on his head. And that is a symbol or a sign of divinity. He was claiming to be God. Tiberius was claiming not only to be Caesar, but to be a god as well. The inscription on the coin reads, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. As, in essence, he's saying, I am the son of God. And on the back side of this coin, it says, Most High Priest. Now put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person at this time, and you get a coin that says that. How does that make you feel? You are a God-fearing Jew who believes in the one God, right? And you get this coin where he's claiming to be the Son of God, and he's claiming to be your High Priest. Every time you have to do anything, you're reminded of that. When you pay taxes, you're reminded. When you buy groceries, you're reminded. Anything you do, you're reminded that, that not only are you being ruled by another nation, but this guy who's in charge, he's claiming to be God. So these coins, these taxes, brought up all these different types of emotions, and it brought up these debates in the Jewish circles. Was it okay to pay taxes or, or should you not? 
And some people said, yes, you have to pay taxes because we live here and they rule us and we really don't have a choice. And, and just because you pay the taxes to Caesar does not mean you agree with the fact that Caesar is God. Others, however, like Judas Galilee, that we read about in history, said, no, it's not okay. And if you pay your taxes to Caesar, then you're a coward and you're bound to pay those taxes and you're doing something that you do that. So you shouldn't pay taxes at all. And so you can't be treated with justice. You can't have the least retaliation. And they had their very own fighting song, right? Whenever they would go in to battle, they would right? We're not going to pay taxes, and you know that's what it is. And guys, no, we're not going to do it. They can trap him because they take offense together. They come up with the same question: Is right to pay your taxes to Caesar or not? And if he said yes, you have to pay your taxes to Caesar, then we can start spreading the rumor: Hey, Jesus recognizes Caesar as God, and and if he recognizes him as God, then he doesn't believe in the one true God. So you guys shouldn't follow him anymore. And if he says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, guess what? He's a rebel, and he's leading this rebellion, and we need to squash him, and we'll turn him over to the... So, you know, they were like, we got him. Either way he answers this question, we got him. They thought they did. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Then give or give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. What a great answer, right? Nicely done, Jesus. In verse 26, it says, They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Right? All their hard work, and Jesus just like, you know, blows their mind at that point. They didn't know what to do. I love how Jesus displays the wisdom here. In, in this dicey situation, when a lot of people would have said the wrong thing, Jesus not only demonstrates integrity, but incredible wisdom with his answer. We don't see that very often in, in public anymore, do we? Politicians or celebrities or sports figures are asked tough questions, or they send something out in the Twitter sphere, and then they spend the next two weeks explaining what they said or apologizing for it, right? That, that's what we've, we've grown accustomed to. And yet Jesus... Here, even when people are setting him up, when they're hoping to catch him in this, you know, whatever the answer is, that they can they can trap him. He answered with integrity. He answered with honesty. He answered with wisdom. In this answer, Jesus affirms Caesar's political power. He says, "Look, you, you've got to give and give back to Caesar what's Caesar's," and he also affirms God's divine power. You've got to give to God what's God's. And the early church they adopted what Jesus said about. was a guy by the name of Domitian, and he was absolutely brutal in the first century. He killed 
lots and lots of believers, and he integrated even more. At one point, he asked them, hey, what's your position now on paying taxes to me? And, and history tells us that the early church, their answer was, we're going to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we're going to give to God what is God's. We'll pay you your taxes. We will respect you and, and honor you as the political authority. We will give to Caesar what Caesar's, but, but we're not going to give you what is God's. And, and he was okay with that answer. He released several people, and, and he was fine with that. However, a little later in, in church history, we learned that a guy by the name of, of Simeon was called before him, and he was questioned uh, about where his stance was. And he said, he said, I will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and I will give to God what is God's. Again, reflecting what Jesus said. And the emperor demanded at that point that he bow down and make a sacrifice to the image of Caesar. And Simeon said, I can't do that. I cannot give to Caesar what only belongs to God, which is ultimately his worship. And, and Simeon was killed on the spot for that. And I think Simeon demonstrated amazing faith at that moment. He was willing to face death instead of giving to Caesar what only belonged to God, which was his surrender and his devotion, his submission, his sacrifice, ultimately his worship. And when we talk about this idea of worship, which is really what we are to, to give back to God, it's this idea of submitting and surrendering ourselves absolutely 100% completely to God. It's acknowledging that God is God and that no one or nothing else can replace Him. I, I think too often we think of worship as just kind of what we do here together on a Sunday morning, uh, you know, singing songs together. I think sometimes we, we falsely believe that if we sing all the words and we sing loud and if we raise our hands and if we clap or we stand with our eyes closed or, or whatever, then that's really worship and that's what worship is all about. Some of us uh, may also think that, that if we sit quietly and meditate, if we light a candle and if we pray, then, then that is true worship. And here's what I want you to, to hear is that I think that's true. All of those things can be worship at one time or another. And I also think that worship could include none of those things. Worship is, is more than just singing a hymn or singing a contemporary song. It's more than, uh, you know, drums and guitars and pianos. It's more than having a leader or having a whole choir singing. Worship is a lot more than that. Worship really has nothing to do with music or us gathering together. It's more of what we do on a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute basis of how we surrender ourselves to the Lord. And what we do here on a Sunday morning when we gather together is ultimately just a reflection of the way in which we, in the way in which we worship Jesus throughout the week. How are we worshiping Him when we're not here? I think that's a direct reflection of our worship here. I think we're all wise enough to understand that you can't spend about 60 minutes with someone uh, each week and expect to have this great flowing relationship where you communicate with each other and things are great, right? And yet sometimes we think that about God. If I come to church, then I'm, I'm good, right? We're good, right? But it's more than that. Worship is more than just what we do here. It's our life. It's how we live. It's our heart. It's it's, it's what we do on a weekly, daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. It, it's, it's the worship that God and God alone deserves in our life. And, and we need to give to God what is God's. We need to give our worship to Him and to Him alone. And that's the type of faith 
that some of the early church believers had. They had this type of faith that said, I'm willing to die for what I believe. I will only give to God what is God's. And as I thought about that, I had to ask myself the question, what does that look like today? Because last time I checked, nobody's, you know, holding a sword to us or threatening to burn us at the stake or, or threatening to kill us if we don't worship them or bow down to them. But, but what does that look like for us today? What does it mean for us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and give to God what is God's? This was a very profound verse for the early believers, and, and I think it has the potential to be very important for us here in Central Jersey this morning. Jesus asked the people this question, whose image is on the coin? And I think the image that, that we have to ask ourselves is whose image is on our lives? Because the image on the coin indicates to whom the coin belongs in the same way that I think the image of our lives indicates to whom we belong. In other words, do we live by the stamp of the image of God, our creator, on our life? Or something else or someone else. As I wrestled with this and, you know, try to evaluate this and, and just try, try to look at, at what image or stamp or mark is on my life and on the lives of other people. And, and not trying to be judgmental or, you know, throw the first stone. But here's what I've seen. Here's what I have observed. I've seen people's lives be stamped with the image of education, with the image of sports whether it's playing or supporting a team, scouts, drama, finances, relationships, resources, personal choices, preferences, personal beliefs, and, and personal desires. I've seen lives stamped with all those things. That, that's the, the main contributing factor of their life. And what, what I want us to see and what I want to challenge you and, and what I'm challenging myself with as well is that God wants to put his stamp on our life. He wants to put his image squarely on our hearts. He has called us to serve and to display righteousness and personal integrity in the midst of a world that has so many other distractions. I really desire and I believe that, that people should be able to point to this church and say, here's a place that has healthy relationships and genuine community. That's what you can find there. A place that supports causes that reflect a sense of moral justice, testifying to God's grace and testifying to his love, a place that teaches the truth of the scripture, of the, of the word of God, while also focused on loving God and loving other people. And I think that the only way that's going to happen, the only way that people are going to be able to look at this community of believers and say that that is true, is that if each and every one of us make an individual choice to allow God to stamp his image on our hearts, show what healthy, God-honoring God honoring relationships look like, especially in, in a world where commitment means very little. We can be the type of place where people can know that the needs of the poor are being met with compassion, what the absence of racism looks like, how people can engage in business with integrity, how reconciliation can take place when people have failed one another, how giving more and living on less impacts both the giver and the recipient. And so many more things. That's who we have been called to be as individuals and as a church. 
we need to allow God to put his stamp on our life. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that, that we are valuable to him. So valuable to him, in fact, that he was willing to give up everything for us. We read the words of Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus about Jesus where he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the encouraging thing to me is, while I, I've seen those other things in life as well, I, I've also seen people who are, who are living uh, the way that I think it reflects that Jesus is stamped on our hearts. It, it's, it's, I've seen people uh, do things that are, are pretty amazing. How you give of yourself and you give of your time and you give of your resources and, and you give of who you are. You, you give love. You exhibit God, God's love in your attitude toward your spouse, in your attitude toward your, your kid. You, you do those things even when it's difficult. And especially when your spouse is maybe like me and is hard to love, right, Michelle? Turn that down just a little bit. Thanks. And, and I've seen you demonstrate that type of love. And it's an amazing type of love that just exemplifies the fact that that God's stamp is on your life. I've seen it in the way that you serve, the way you jump in to fill Easter eggs for kids that you'll never probably even meet, and they're going to find those Easter eggs, the way in which you watch your neighbor's kids so that they can go out on a date, the, the way that you cook a meal or you buy a cup of coffee or you pray or you listen or you help somebody out. You're willing to serve, and I, I've seen people do that. I, I've seen the way that, that you reach out to other people, and, and on a Sunday morning, you, you go out of your comfort zone to say hi. It's, it's really easy for those who are extroverts on a Sunday morning after the first song to step out and say hi to other people. It's really hard for those of you who are like, oh, here we go, right? And yet one of the ways we, we demonstrate that God's stamp is on our life is by being welcoming to people and to try to demonstrate that love to them. Ultimately, we are to bear the image of God and have it be stamped on our hearts and our soul and our mind, and we do it with all of our strength. And while some of you are doing that, and it's, it's amazing, others of you, you're not. And you know that. I'm not really telling you anything that you don't know, but, but my challenge and my encouragement to you is, today, will you give to God what is God's? Will you give back to God the life that he gave to you? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God that which is God's. Would you do that today? Would you respond to him in such a way that, that you allow yourself to be transformed and, and no longer live by the ways of this world, but to be renewed in your mind and to do the things that God has called you to do and to be the person that God has called you to be? Would you bear the image of one who's loved, one who's forgiven, one who has changed, one who has hope of life and life eternal? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we, we always want to give you that opportunity to, to do that, to come forward and say, uh, like Lauren did last week, I, I want to walk this path with him. I, I want him to be my Lord. I want him to be my Savior. I want to accept him. Maybe you've wandered off that path and it's time to come back to him. Maybe you just want someone to pray with you. This is a time for you to respond to what God is doing in your life, and we want to give you that opportunity. The band's going to lead us in this song, and if you want to talk to someone about what God is doing in your life, we invite you to make your way over to the cross, and we'd be more than happy to meet you there and pray with you and talk with you. Or maybe you just need to respond to God right where you are this morning and, and do business with him right where you are. Whatever you need to do, 
in response to the Lord, in response to his word, to give to God what belongs to God, we invite you to do that this morning. Stand with me. Let's sing. You respond.